When was the last time that you went for a walk? Like a long walk. Walking for me was one of the most transformative things in my late teens. I was like, you know, I was unemployed. I was sedentary, a very overweight, not very clearly thinking person. And walking, starting off with very short walks and then getting longer and longer, that really helped shift my headspace and my body and what I thought of myself and, you know, everything in my life literally shifted it one step at a time. I've spoken on this podcast before about how powerful I can find a simple walk around the block. I've even done a whole podcast where I took you for a walk around the block and I was just naming every tree, every bird, every leaf and just being mindful. Those 10 short minutes can really transform my day. But what about a long walk? What's longer than a long walk? A hike. Okay, no, what's longer than a hike? A trek. Yeah, a trek. But how long is a trek? It would be... Standing with your back to the ocean and then walking as far as you can in the other direction until you hit ocean. That's probably it. That's a trek. And that is exactly what today's guest did. In 2019, Sophie Madison had a desire for a different kind of life. And that desire led her to set quite an audacious goal to walk across the width of Australia covering an astounding 5,000 kilometres from Shark Bay in Western Australia to Byron Bay in New South Wales. But Sophie didn't walk alone. She was joined on this journey by five camels. And together, Sophie and her camels faced life and death situations, harsh weather conditions. They overcame the challenges of solitude, of going weeks without encountering another soul. That Sophie's journey was not just about conquering the physical terrain, of which you can imagine is quite harsh. There's a lot of desert in that walk. It was also for her a quest, essentially, for self-discovery, for, for personal growth and um, the things that she found and what she grew into are really, really interesting. She covers all of it in her glorious memoir, The Crossing, and a bit of it uh, in today's conversation. Sophie learned a lot on that adventure, and today we, t- we speak about the highs and the lows, the, the challenges, the moments of real heartbreak and, and sheer wonder that defined her year-long odyssey across Australia, this beautiful, beautiful country that I love so much. It's such a great chat. She's a very inspiring person. Before we get to it, I do need to play some ads because, you know, I pay the people who work here and the ads pay the way. Thanks for listening to them. We'll be back in a moment with Sophie. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's so much value to pushing yourself both physically, mentally, uh, or pushing your, you know, your comfort zones because it makes those tiny moments of joy so much better. And that's the thing I think I love now and really appreciate about doing, I guess, harder travel is that by having that long day walking or that hot day walking or, you know, surviving a tough situation, you know, it makes just sitting down at the end of the day having a cup of tea seem like the best thing in the world. It really makes you appreciate that. That is photographer, author and adventurer Sophie Madison. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. Together, we have been learning how to make it better since 2013. Uh, Three times a week, I'm here, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays, it's just me and you. My name is Osha Ginsberg. I am a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm a radio host now, a 24-7 digital broadcasting station in Australia with my friend Yumi. And, And I'm an author. And I'm really grateful that you're here today. I'm also, at this point of recording, I'm recording this on a Saturday, a Gold Logie nominee. Now, if you're listening to this on Monday, you'll know how, so this episode comes out on uh, the 31st of July. So you'll know what happened last night at the Logies by now. I don't. If you're listening to this in five years from now, you'll also know. If you're listening to this in another country, okay, the Logies are like our Emmy Awards or our BAFTA Awards or our our TV Awards. It's the big awards thing for the TV people. And at this point of recording, I am a, uh, it's Schrodinger's Logie. I am both a winner and not a winner right now. And uh, either way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm recording this on a Saturday, so I don't know. I'm so nervous. It's a battle between my nerves and my ego. It's mixed in with how much I miss my wife and my family, which is terribly. And so I'm also nervous, but also I kind of want to, I've been walking around all day just wanting to cry because um, I miss my family so much. You know, I'm, I'm training really hard and I'm working a lot and that helps. But, you know, me by myself in a apartment or a hotel room is not, a recipe for goodness. So I'm trying to stay busy and trying to 
be as physical as I can. But um, yeah, it's, it's a struggle, mate. I mean, I miss them so much. And, you know, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow night is a part of that. But mostly it's the battling of the ego trying to, you know, write speeches in my head or imagine whatever's like it's it's my ego wants to believe that everything will be awesome you know now i spoke about this on friday's show nothing changes it's just a day that i wear a lovely suit and i have a beautiful night with my wife and everyone i ever have or ever will work with Um, i'm just trying to take each moment as as i can and um, i'm just trying to breathe at some point, I probably am going to have to make some notes about what to say if I do, if anything does happen. But I'm trying to avoid that as much as possible. If you did vote, thank you so much for voting. I have no control over how many people or who voted. All I know is that I've I've done all the things that I can do. When I got nominated for this award, I saw, well, look, I'm up against like the best in the business there's very, very little chance that I will hold that trophy. And that's fine. But I am going to use this moment to, I guess, you don't need reminding because you're here, but try to remind people what it is that I have done and what it is I'm capable of, mostly to draw more attention to this podcast because here on this podcast, that's the kind of, this is who I am. You're listening to me, me. All right. The things that people see me for on this award or that award by now <laughs> is the me at work, all right? And the this version of me, who has been me the whole time that's done all these things, is the me that I want to remind people exists because this is the part of what it is that I do that I'm deliberately, quite deliberately pushing forward because it's it's been a very fun adventure going back over all the footage for all it's been really interesting and really fun it's very silly and you know, I'm really enjoying it but this is a definite moment there's before this nomination and then everything that comes after because from here this is now it is it has been for a while but this is the this is the moment this is the it's all about creating from here i'm very grateful to have the job that i have and part of that job is being of service to a property or a franchise or a format that somebody else created, but I am a small part of. Uh, from here, it is absolutely all about creating and creating things that well, maybe other people can host. I don't care. But this is this podcast is one of those things. NTNN, NNN, the news show that we've got a pilot up for, actually. We're, we're making a pilot in a couple of weeks. Um, that is one of those things. It's been a definite focus over the last few years of, of, of what it is I want to do with my time and put my effort into. But uh, from this moment, this is just all guns blazing. I've been uh, slowly, slowly assembling quite a team to go forward from here. Most of it is podcast team, uh, repurposed and now given larger roles. And um, off we go. Step by step, we are moving ahead. And that is a terrible segue, but I don't care. I'm either a gold Logie winner or someone who didn't win a gold Logie, and I stand by that segue. Um <laughs> Uh, because my guest today literally step-by-step crossed Australia. My guest today is someone who I just have so much admiration for. She had a massive idea and then didn't let the problems that she maybe imagined she would encounter stop her from beginning the execution of that idea and just starting. 
She just started and figured it out along the way. Sophie Madison is a remarkable woman. She walked across Australia, her and five camels. Incredible. The book, she wrote a book about it. It's called The Crossing. It's pretty good. (laughs) It's a really good book. And in this conversation, we touch on just a few of the things that that she discovered along the way and things that even though you or I will probably in our lives never walk across Australia with five camels, let alone without five camels, that doesn't mean that you and I can't benefit from the, the lessons that she's learned because that's what this podcast is all about. It is, as corny as it sounds, it really is a reminder to all of us. It, it literally is just a step at a time. That's all you've got to do. In her words, I'm just going to get up today and go for a walk. Amazing. I hope you enjoy meeting Sophie as much as I did. Sophie, thank you so much for making time for me. Um, it's extraordinary to speak to you because you have done something that I don't know, people all over the world would dream of doing. You know, you've literally walked across Australia. Uh, you did it alone, well, kind of alone. You walked across with five camels, uh, which is pretty beautiful. And if anyone's listening and they've tried to meditate, five minutes alone is an eon when you first started meditating. Not speaking to anyone for five minutes, not looking at your phone for five minutes is an eon. You did that for 5,000 kilometres. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty deep meditation, that's for sure. <laughs> and, and that is something that I am... I'm I'm really really interested in my first camel that I ever saw uh, was at Victor Harbour. I think they're still there. Oh, okay. I, you know, when we yep. first came to Australia, we lived in Adelaide, and there's photos of me on the back of a camel on on the sand. I bet I know those people actually that have the camels because it's a small world, and we all know. By one the another. weird little train, <laughs> the weird little tram that goes out to the little island yes. island there. Yeah. And yeah, camels they're, they're they're colossal quadrupeds. They're enormous creatures. Mm. When you're three, they're in, they're even bigger. You know, they're mm. like like a giraffe without the neck. They're absolutely massive bodied animals. When was the first time you saw a camel? You're from Brisbane. Like, was it the Echo? Where was it? Well, I've got photos of when I was tiny, actually. Yeah, maybe about probably three or four. Actually, no, probably a bit older, probably about six or so. And I've still got those photos. And I'm sitting on a camel. uh, And it must have been, I think, just at a little carnival or something like that or a little, yeah, a little show that had come to to Brisbane and uh, mum took me and I went on a camel ride. and, And, yeah, and I barely, barely even remembered that I had that experience you know it wasn't until sort of years down the track that I got, became fascinated with camels that we pulled out this old <laughs> photo of me what part of Brisbane did well, sorry for everyone listening we're about to play the play the Queensland game what part of Brisbane <laughs> did you grow up in <laughs> um I grew up in uh, partly out at Sanford uh yeah. which is just sort of where it starts to go rural in yeah. Brisbane so we had a couple of acres out there and then partly in at um, Red Hill when my parents <sighs> split up so I would go between the two so from a very early age, I think I was already traveling in a way. I was bouncing between houses oh, all the time. Oh, man. Like, were you doing the 522? <laughs> what, what, what was the split? Well, I sort of had a bizarre situation, actually. Originally, when mum and dad broke up, mum bought a house across the road. But because, <laughs> but because we were on acreage, it was, you know, they, they had there was plenty of space. Right. Um, so I used to just walk back and forth across the road whenever I felt like it. Wow. Really, so it, was, it was great. Wow. Yeah. Are you uh, one of many or are you by yourself? 
I'm yeah, I'm an only child. Wow. Yeah. That is tough, man. I was 11 when my folks split up and I am I'm one of four. So, you know, there was some solidarity there, I guess, between us yeah. boys, but yeah. damn, that would have been it was actually, you know what, I think back to it and I think I, they had probably the most amicable breakup of anyone I know. Wow. It was, yeah, it was they've always sort of both been there for me. They've never had trouble, you know, both being at the same events together. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, you know, continue, continue to support me in their own ways. When you were at, at school, was there any inkling that, uh, you know, going solo on your feet across a nation or, you know, going to the Middle East and <laughs> wrangling <laughs> wrangling camels was a part of it. Like what, what, what was it when you're in high school? I'm going to grow up and be a vet. What was it? No, not at all. So I went to, I went to girls grammar in Brisbane and it was quite a prestigious <laughs> high school. So I know it was, it. it was about 400 meters from my high school. <laughs> oh, there you go. There we go. <laughs> what school did you go to? Well, not the one next door, the one, the other, the, oh, the other road. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know the one. Yeah. yeah. And so it was, it was all about, I remember at the time about becoming, you know, a doctor or a lawyer it was pretty sort of and I remember when I chose I went off and did film and TV as a degree afterwards Wow! and I sort of thought oh yeah I really bucked the trend here for girls grammar I'm like the black sheep already yeah and then when I went into uh, camels I thought oh they'll never forgive me now <laughs> <laughs> what, what film and TV uh, you know was was there for you we did that you study in Queensland uh, I went down to Byron actually, and I yes. studied at, at SAE College um, oh, wow. in Byron. So it was it was pretty pretty great, really. I so that's, and, that's a bit and, of an eye, that's a bit of an eye opener to go from go from Brizzo and kind of like semi rural west and the end, then Blueyville. Well, I think it's more Bluey's more Cooparoo, I think out there because the view from their house is impossible. You can't have the city in the background and the bridge in the foreground if you're on the west side. So yeah, I don't know. I think it might be Cooparooish where. The Bluey houses. Oh, I watch a lot of Bluey, um, <laughs> but, but you know they do go out your way quite a bit. They do go out to Stanford and the Gap, and they're out that way quite a bit. Yeah, okay. Oh yeah, it's pretty good. They actually drove the other day. They drove past the Gap Village shopping center. It was oh so wow, sick. I'm going to have to get into Bluey. My. <laughs> Well, you know, you would know growing up in Brisbane, you just never see your own city anywhere mm. on any Australian TV ever, mm -hmm. except for Gold Coast Cops. You're like, okay, yeah. this is it. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, here's like literally the highest rated, most viewed Australian thing that's ever mm. been made in history. And it's all Brisbane and there's City Cats and there's the, you know, Story Bridge and there's, you know, Q1. There's well, because because I don't have kids, so I, I haven't been watching Blue, but everyone that, that ha I know that has kids, they, they just love it. So You don't need kids I'm, to watch yeah, Blue. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard, so I, re I really need to get into it. <laughs> uh, you can write these down and you're more than, and you'd appreciate this. The three I would say to you, uh, everything you ever wanted to know about script writing and story writing is in, a, uh -huh. in, a, in an episode called Curry Swap. Uh, everything you wanted to know about cognitive behavioral therapy is in an episode called Space. And everything you ever wanted to know about healing childhood trauma, and I warn you, I cry twice every time I watch this show, and I've seen it 28 times, oh. uh, is, is a show called uh, – Oh, no, sorry, Space is a trauma one and Stories is a CBT one. So it's... Wow, they touch on okay. everything. It's amazing. Mate, it's unreal. 
Yeah. And everyone sees themselves as Bandit, which is the dad, which is why the other day there was an episode where he jumped on the scales and he grabbed his belly and went, oh, got to exercise a bit more. That's you know, actually, that was the one episode that I have seen. I flicked the TV on and it was on on that episode. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, like Homer Simpson has done that 500 times and no one gives a fuck, but we don't see ourselves in Homer. So it's yeah. fine, but we mm. see ourselves in Bandit. And mm. if you have a problem with your own body, and, and, and long story, anyway. Um, <laughs> well, so going from there to Byron, like so you're 18, mm. 19, leashes off, what happened? It just seemed natural to me in a way. Like I always, yeah. because I'd grown up, I wasn't actually born in Brizzy. I was born in Hong Kong. We then moved to Paris. Then we, and then we came to Australia and then, like I said, then my parents split up, so I was always moving. And I did a lot of traveling when I was young too. And so I just always assumed that everyone after school would would leave and go out yeah. to, you know, <laughs> different parts of Australia yeah. or the world and do their things. And, and when I went down to Byron, I sort of thought, oh, oh, that's strange. I seem to be the only one that has moved away from Brisbane. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so it, it was kind of, I don't know, yeah, natural to me, but it was... Yeah, it was a great time. It was, uh, I loved being by the ocean. I had a real yeah. love for the ocean. So Were your parents was... in finance? Like, was that it? My dad was in, uh, worked for the Hong Kong bank. So, yeah. yes, that, that was the go. travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hong Kong, it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah. So, you left, were you there pre-handover? Yes, we were. Wow. Mm, yeah, so it's a different place these days, I hear. Yeah. Mm. What? I remember watching that on TV. I was mm. doing the overnight shift in Brisbane and I remember watching them hand the flag over, like proper colonial wildness. Yeah. yeah it's, it's what interesting. But what a perspective, though, to come to Brisbane with that under your belt because Brizzo is an interesting spot, right? And um, and But to have your view of the world already be such a wide-angle lens and so the sounds of so many different languages in your ears uh, to then show up and, you know, hear people who speak through their nose when they say the letter E. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Um, you know, so film, film and TV at, at SAE and Byron, like, are you, are you thinking like, this is it, I'm the next Blue Tongue Films, I'm going to make the next version of Chopper? Like, what, what, was the, what was the pathway? Yeah, I think I was ambitious in a way, but I, I was, it was kind of like I was ambitious, but I also just constantly had this, these itchy feet. Mm. And so after I finished SAE, I wanted to go traveling even more. Yeah. So I set off uh, on this big trip. Well, before that, I'd set off on about a, a five-month trip before I even went to uni. I took a, I took a gap year. Nice. And then after uni, uh, I decided I wanted to go and work some ski seasons in Canada. Nice. Um, and so I went over to Whistler and I worked as a photographer on the slopes there and then went to <laughs> Vancouver Island and, and worked as a surf school photographer there. So I was just... You know, I, yes, I wanted to do well in film and TV, but I also just was just constantly, yeah, yeah. wanted to see the world and was, you know, never felt I was ready to settle down in a way. Whistler's, uh, <laughs> Whistler's a wacky spot. I, I think I went in there. I went there twenty years ago and um, I uh, busted my ACL. Uh, but I, um, I think it was that year that I went of the say if there were the thousand working visas that went out from Canada to Australia that year, um, 987 of them went to Whistler. Like, yeah, it was just like, mini Australia. Yeah, I remember it really that. was. It wasn't until I moved to Vancouver, Vancouver Island that I had any Canadian friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Canada's an extraordinary place, you know, yeah. and, and if you can get out of, I guess, you know, going to Whistler can be a little like just going to um, Earl's Court in London. Like you can go to the other side of the world and not know what it's like 
like to be of that mm. country. Uh, mm. If you surround yourself culturally with things that are overly familiar and blokes who are wearing a T-shirt that says load by day, loaded by night. Uh, <laughs> it was one of my lifty friends had that. Uh, but Van, Vancouver Island, Van Island's amazing. And, yeah. you know, just to be around that kind of nature and a surf school in that water, ambitious. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it was cold. It was cold. <laughs> I had a 5-4 wetsuit and even I'd feel the cold even with that. <laughs> did you get in the water a lot? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I tried to surf as much as I could and, you know, we were always out. But it was, yeah, like you said, just the wilderness there was amazing, you know, being surrounded by bald eagles and bears and, you know, cougars. Not that I ever saw one, but, you know. To, you know and they're, orca. They're, Let's not forget orca. Orcas, like you're in the water exactly. with orca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I never got to see an orca, but I, I always, always wanted to. But, yeah, whales. That great I don't whales know, man. Like, or, like a shark in surfing is one thing. An orca? <laughs> This is a, an animal that needs to eat a seal a day to stay yeah, alive. I remember when I first moved <laughs> over to there, some friends showed me this video and there was, yeah, some orcas came into one of the bays there while there was a bunch of surfers. And you just see them all go, oh, oh, what's that in the distance? Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh, and then you see them starting to, like, panic and, and paddle yeah. very quickly to shore. <laughs> well, they hunt, they hunt in packs. They're wolves mm. of the water. It's not like mm. a shark that's solo. They will they will coordinate yeah. and communicate with each other. And, totally. I know. Boy, as beautiful as they are, I've got a lot of respect for them. Very, yeah. And oh, I don't know. It's a great idea. I don't know. Let's put it in a massive fish tank and have them jump out of a pool and grab fish oh. for tourists. No. Bad idea. Terrible <laughs> idea. I saw that documentary, Blackfish. It was heartbreaking. Bad, bad idea. So, look, you're in the ocean, you're in the snow, there's, you know, bears. Like, how do you get to camels? Like, where, what happens? I still wonder this myself. Because <laughs> um, I'd never really, I hadn't actually really done any of the outback in Australia. Right. I'd travelled, yeah. you know, lots of different places around the world and I hadn't done the outback at all. And I actually never really had much of a desire to. I sort of thought, oh, you know, it'll always be there and, you know, it's only oldies, you know, that travel the outback. And um, and it wasn't until I moved down to Adelaide with my ex-boyfriend at the time who was in the Army and that was my first um, taste of, the, of going into the outback because yeah. uh, I ended up doing walking part of the Hyson Trail, which is up north uh, in the Flinders Ranges. And uh, yeah, I remember driving into the outback and going, how would anyone, like, well, why would anyone want to live here? And it's so dry. And, and so I kind of find it funny that then, you know, a couple of years later, I circled back and ended up, you yeah. know, doing such a big walk in the outback. It, it is interesting that so many people go overseas before they explore here. And yet, uh, having been, uh, you know, to parts of the world where this happens, there's, really not many, if any, places in the world left that you can be in proper, proper, proper mm. wilderness, like wilderness that it, the isolation will kill you before mm. a militia does. You know, like you can go to a desert on the other side of the world and you're probably more likely to run into trouble with someone with an AK-47 than you are to run out of water, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Same for Northern Territory, the same for jungle, same for, you know, like far, far north, you know, tip of Queensland. Like there's wilderness in Australia where that's just not full of gorillas. Yeah. Like not like the I'm talking the gun toting yeah. rebel types. Because <laughs> um, that that's all like there's wilderness in like PNG, like Sumatra, like it's all there, but it's so terrifyingly fringes mm. of society and 
But here in Australia, you can do that. Like, it's still super dangerous. You can still absolutely die, no problem at all, (laughs) just from being an idiot or not even, or just from sheer bad luck. But it's going to be because of that and not because of... You know, some yeah. some rebel with a Russian weapon is going to ask you no, for this. I often think that just, you know, how lucky I've been and how lucky we are, I think, in general in Australia to have yeah. that pure, pristine wilderness out there, mm. to be able to go into a landscape where you can look 360 degrees around you and just see wide open horizons, nothing, no sign of, you know, no sign of man anywhere. That is in this day and age, so incredibly special. Um, yeah, and I guess that's what I sort of fell in fell in love with. Yeah, you've, the, you've written a book about your adventures called The Crossing and what you just described is something that happened to me for the first time in 2000 when I went out to Central Australia for the first time and I had never experienced it before to look in every direction and see no man-made object other than the track that I had travelled in on Mm. and how immensely tiny I Mm. felt. You just can't – what was it like for you the first time that happened? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm skipping forward a little bit here because I really had that feeling for the first time when I was out with the camels on my own and I'd experienced – you know, I, I had in the years leading up to my trip, I'd worked with camels for about four years. So I had been into the in the outback for a while and, and you know, seen those wide places. But I always remember when I, when I was just on my own with my camels setting off into the Great Victoria Desert, which was sort of the big desert crossing I did. The Great Victoria is Australia's largest desert. And having this feeling, I think as well, especially when you're, when you're walking and travelling on foot, you all of a sudden, when you have no, when there's no sign of any human stuff or humans or towns anywhere, you know, you have this sudden feeling of vulnerability. Like I was, yeah, I was just this, this tiny little object in this huge, huge, vast space, me and my camels. And, um, it was, it was surprisingly, cause I had, you know, I loved nature and I loved the outback already. It was, I was surprised at how terrifying that feeling was actually letting go of, you know, the last signs of, of anything. Yeah. You worked, uh, you worked at that kind of interesting camel ranch near Uluru for a, for a little while, uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you? I did. I did. So I worked taking tours, um, around the rock sunrise and well, not around the rock, but yeah, sunrise and sunset tours yeah. near the rock. And, and that's where my camels came from. Actually, they were mustered from the wild, um, out yeah. there. You can't be in that part of Australia and not have intimate and up close and really personal kind of interaction with the with the local community uh, and the people whose land uh, it is. What I guess was your biggest misconception, having come from Brisbane and been in you know been in Adelaide and been around the world? What was your biggest misconception that you had busted having those interactions? In terms of with Aboriginal people. Yeah, with the First Nations people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it was really interesting because I remember got moving out to Uluru and thinking, I'm so excited to have some Aboriginal friends. Like I yeah. felt so removed from uh, Indigenous culture 
having grown up in Brisbane, like there was no one I knew growing up that was Indigenous and I just had no, you know, it was spoken about on the TV but I had no personal yeah. relationship It was never spoken it. about positively. Come no, on, it was yeah, Queensland, it man. Wasn't. It was bad news. <laughs> um, and so when I moved out to Uluru, I was, I was sort of disappointed, I guess, a little bit in a way and I think it was just partly because it, it was quite separate at Uluru. Uh, you know, there was everyone working in, in tourism out there, um, so me working at the camel farm. And then there was the Indigenous community, which was which was a closed community. And and in those areas, they the culture is still really strong. So they would speak Pitjantara, and you'd see them coming into the shops, and they they would be chatting away. And so there was it was just two different worlds in, in a little in a way. But fascinating, I became you know fascinated seeing that. And it wasn't actually until I met my friend Greg, who worked um, at Uluru, uh, and Greg was. He was from Rocky. He was an Indigenous guy, but he had actually spent time out there in communities and he could speak a bit of Pitjantara and Yunkinjara. Uh, and he started to teach me words. And that was just, yeah, my first tiny little introduction into it. And, um, but yeah, there's a, a real, uh, I started to feel like in those landscapes, just how powerful that sense of connection to place is. Um, there was parts out at Katajuda, which is the Alders, and also parts uh, Rainbow Valley. I remember visiting outside Alice Springs where I just, I remember going camping there and just having this feeling like the land was just humming with this incredible energy, like energy from ceremonies that had passed. And, and I thought, well, this is just such a, a powerful culture. And so intertwined with uh, survival and and daily life, every story, every song, is uh, not only the you know underscores the from the very little I know though. So if you don't know all of it, the very little I know, every story, every song underscores not only the kind of the rules based systems that keep the community together, but also uh, how to sustain life uh, as the seasons go. Mm. And uh, you know, every, you know, this is the song that we sing at this time of year because these are the foods that mm. keep us alive, and these are the stories we tell at this time of year because this is when we have to get up and go over there um, mm. to make sure that we can stay alive over the winter or, or, or whatever mm. it may, may be. And to understand that from a Western point of view and a, a certainly a time point of view, I think as well, as I, you know, I've talked about this before. It's like the first time I saw Uluru, I started crying. Mm. I was just like, I've seen mm. cathedrals. I've seen, I've stood on the mm. Western Wall in Jerusalem. I've never been so overcome mm. with the spiritual significance of a place. You know, I didn't have some sort of, you know, intervention. The sun didn't shine down mm. for me. It was just being and reflecting Huge upon. Power, yeah. How could you not worship that? Yeah. How could you not have that as a center of your universe? Yeah. How could that this this bringer of life? Because it it's, that's where the water collects around the base of the yeah, the of Uluru. Like, and you you just how could you not want to look after it? How could you not be careful around it? And how could you not be completely fucked off when someone comes and builds a campground at the foot of it, and when people want to climb all over mm. it? Like, how could you not be super angry? Mm. And I this? was and I was taking camel tours the year that the climb shut actually on the wow. road. So it was, it was a fascinating time in history to be there too because I would take people out on, on these sunrise or sunset rides and it was really interesting. It was, you know, it was very half-half though. You'd get some Australians that were out there going, you know, oh, I've never, uh, you know, I thought I'd come out here and climb it because this was the last opportunity I'd get to climb it. 
you know, and then you'd have the other half of, of the string going, we would we would never want to do anything like that. We would never want to climb. Yeah. So, so, well, yeah, that, I think and what you're talking about there, that's an education situation. Mm. That's an education issue. It's mm. like we were, you know, it was given an English name mm. and and it was it was art rock. And, and it was, you know, we, we get to climb all over things because we are the masters of science. We uh, created agriculture. Da, 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 da. It's not seen or educated as in like, oh, no, no, no. This is essentially, you know, I don't know mm. what you want to call it. This is this is the whatever the rock is in Mecca. You know, it's like you're not going to be standing all over that, are you? Mm. Like people would be pretty pissed off if mm, you did. Totally. And I remember, <laughs> yeah. I remember my friend Greg, you know, the Aboriginal guy that I knew, I remember him, you know, telling people on these camel tours about what it meant to him and what it meant to his mm. culture and just what a, you know, huge importance it was. And, and yeah, he would have people on, on the strings of camels, you know, almost in tears. And yeah, uh, yeah. he even had someone actually who had collected, they had collected uh, sort of sand from the area and yeah. it's really it's really bad juju to do that to collect anything yeah, right. and take it home, and they yeah. and these these tourists they ended up sending the sand back to Greg and say with all these letters saying we're so sorry you know please put this back at the rock and wow. you know yeah they yeah yeah it's a, it's a just an education and just mm. having empathy and understanding that just because something means this to uh, you know a Western eye doesn't mean and, and certainly the other thing I was going to say is you talked about being at Rainbow Valley I was lucky enough to have been there once mm. the story and the significance of this place has not changed in 60,000 years it's not like oh in the old days we used to do this no 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 it's the same mm. as it ever was and this story is as significant as important today as it was to the person that first told it and so this idea of then displacement from place starts to be extraordinarily damaging culturally but this is again. This is we were never told that we were never mm. understood that. Mm. Nor did anyone ever give a shit to ask. Mm. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's changing a lot now. But yeah, I remember it was just never. It's, you know, it was never spoken about yeah. when I, I was at school, and 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 I wasn't <laughs> exposed to it growing up. And yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. We are so lucky to be in this country, and so lucky to live in a time in history where, you know, our indigenous culture is is starting to be uh, valued in a way that has never been valued um, by you know, the Western side of things before. There's a few times in my career, Sophie, to change gears a little bit. There's a few times in my career when I've looked people in the eye and said, I'm going to do this. And they look at me and go, well, because nothing I'm going to say is going to stop you. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> you are. Whether it succeeds or fails, I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to you, clearly. Off you pop, you know. <laughs> do you remember the first time you said to someone, this is what I'm going to do? I don't know. I don't know that I specifically remember the first time, but I remember people having that sort of like, oh yeah, okay. Like, you know, you're going to walk across Australia with camels and just that vacant look, I guess, in their eyes where you could tell that they did not think that I was serious and that they thought, oh, we'll, we'll just humor her for this, you know. Yeah, you know, she'll give it up soon. You know, it'll be too hard. It'll be hard to get the camels, you know. It's too big a thing. She won't do it. Because you can't be, you can't be what you can't see. Like the idea didn't come out of. No, what was there an inspiration behind it? Did you want to be? Did you want to follow in the lines of like possibly the greatest, most tautological expedition ever named the Victorian Exploring Expedition, set up by the Expedition Society of Victoria? <laughs> I'm not even joking. That was like <laughs> that's exactly what it was called. What was it that you went? Ah, oh, that's a thing. I could do a version of that. I think it was it was almost like a slow progression, the idea, a little bit in a way. Um, I mean, it was partly I had been working with camels for, yeah, about four years and, 
And as soon as I fell in love with them, I just thought, you know, these animals are fantastic. And then I started to hear about other people who had done big camel trips. And, you know, you start to realise how capable they are as an animal for for doing an expedition in Australia, you know. Is there a Facebook group of the cameling community? There like actually it, what, genuinely <laughs> is. There is Shut a up. cameliers community on Facebook. Cameliers. Uh, yeah, yeah, I loved it, you know. <laughs> so so it, in some ways it seemed totally normal. normal. And I think... But it, it also just came at this time of my life, I guess, that was just, I don't know, ripe for it. It was, yeah. I, I, st- I wasn't ready to settle down. I was wanting to prove myself, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Not, not really for anyone else, but more to myself. Uh, yeah. You know, I hadn't really found my place in film and TV. I'd sort of been a jack of all trades, master of none, yeah. but couldn't really find exactly what I wanted to do. And I, But I wanted to do some big thing in my life and I just stumbled into camels and camels brought with them this weird sense of certainty, I guess. I had never been, like I said, I'd never been certain of where I wanted to go in film and TV. And then when I met the camels, they had this amazing sort of calm presence. And I thought, this makes no sense to me whatsoever. I have no idea where I'm going with this job with camels, but I'm fascinated by it. And for once, I actually just followed that fascination and that desire. And it felt really right. And yeah, and it was the most certain I've ever been about anything. I was so certain that I was going to do this. That's so fantastic. <laughs> and because you mentioned you'd be working with camels. But we, you, some of that was overseas. Uh, you were in the States, I think. You were working with uh, a camel herd in Texas. Yeah, so I ended up, so so with my ex-boyfriend, we, we had this big trip planned and uh, went down the west coast of the States in a camper van and, and then I wasn't ready to come home still. I still had these itchy feet. And uh, and so through the Cameliers Facebook, partly, yes. I, thought, I thought, well, what's everyone else doing with camels overseas? And uh, yeah. so I ended up going to stay with a Mennonite family in Michigan and I volunteered helping them milk their camels for about a month. And it was possibly the most culturally interesting experience I have ever had. I don't know anything about Mennonites. Is that somewhat Amish? Like, yes, what is exactly. it? Exactly. So they were. So these this couple they had been married in the Amish faith, and then they had turned Mennonite. So it's exactly like Amish, except that they they have embraced technology in the sense they had a computer, they did ah. have a TV, they had a car, um, but otherwise very Amish in the belief system. It's, it, it is. It is it, I'm only learning more. I'm learning more about Amish. I don't know how, but like they will use technology if the technology serves them to do the things that they want to do, which is have every meal with their family. That's uh, like like the family is the most important thing. So if having, say, for example, a phone helps them have mm. every meal with their family, they'll ask their you know the leader of their church, "Can I get a phone?" And they'll go. Well, all right, but it's just the one you can't use as a smartphone. It has to stay in the but you can't be in the yeah, house. So sometimes they have phone yeah. houses outdoor from the house. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be different rules for Amish. I think there's you know some very strict Amish, and then there's a little bit more loose Amish. But yeah, the family I stayed with, I remember them. They, there was a truck turned up for with yeah. the bottles of the milk, you know, for the camel's milk, and he turned up on a Sunday, and uh, Marlon said, "Look." you're welcome to camp overnight. Uh, you're welcome to join us for dinner, but we will not be unloading the truck because it's Sunday and Sunday is a day of rest. 
So, yeah, it was, you know, it was just... The camels stayed on the truck? No, no, sorry, it wasn't the camels on the truck. It was milk bottles for the camel milk on the truck. But, yeah, it was that, you know, that kind of, yeah, belief about... um, you know, yeah, family, and uh, I, I even went to church with them, wearing a bonnet and everything. It was, Whoa! yeah, it was, it was great. I loved so, it. So I don't, I, I, like, I haven't eaten dairy in a long time. I had an ex girlfriend that was lactose intolerant, and I stopped eating. So that was the first thing I stopped eating. Sometime in the mid nineties. So I'm, a, I know how cows get milked. I have no idea how goats get milked, but I know that goat milk is available. I have no idea how camels get milked. <laughs> so mostly in the Western world, it's from machine, just like a just like cows. When I went to India, I saw the nomads milk their camels, and they do it all by hand. And Whoa. I tell you what, they are like more in more efficient than a machine. They right. they could milk a camel faster than a machine could. They were. And I'm sure that the animals don't mind it. The animals are okay with no, it. No, so, than they, a- so they and they would as well. They would balance their pot on one knee because they would be travelling around with their camels. So basically, they had virtually no possessions, um, bar these beautiful yeah. stainless steel pots that they'd carry around. They'd balance that on one knee, and they would have the calf. The camel calf mm-hmm. would come and and suckle on one side of, the, of that camel's udder and then they would be standing on the other side balancing this pot and they would milk the other two teats as that little baby camel sucks. So, yeah, it was, and they would just do it open out in the field, no restraints, nothing. Wow, because I, I I do know that, like, it's a, it's a highly prized product, mm. uh, camel milk in some parts of the world, and I'm sure people realise this, but there's feral camels all over, all over the inside of Australia. They're worse than Brumbies, Brumbies, because uh, they're the like mm. they're the crown of thorn starfish of the desert. Like they will just live everywhere, and you know <laughs> they <laughs> really sort, are. I'd sort of argue there's a, we've got a lot of feral animals, uh, you know, in Australia. Okay, they're not as bad as cats. My God, no, no cats. They're not they're as way, bad. Exactly. Cats are the to, worst. I was cats. about to say that. <laughs> no, cats are the cats, cats are terrible. Terribly mm. bad, like catastrophically bad. Yes, Cats are so. <laughs> even your cat that lives in your house that you go, oh no, little snuffles. She's this. fine. No, <laughs> she's fucking uh, the reason that we don't have ringtail possums in the backyard. Like that is what mm. is that is the reason. Mm. And yes, the one that sits on your lap while you're watching your maths or whatever. Your cat, yes, your cat fucking kills everything in mm. the neighborhood. They are land sharks and yeah. feral versions. When they go feral, they're like pigs. They go. I'm wild, and some gene expression turns on. Yeah, and they become and they just be- massive beasts, mm. terrifying, mm. terrifying animals. But camels, well, okay, let's say this: say this. they're the lantana. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's just, a good way to describe it. Yes, they yes. can live. <laughs> they smell lovely, but can live everywhere, and they're all over the internal parts of Australia. Definitely. And so they're also the initial br- bloodline that came over here in the 1860s. So they're very highly prized overseas. Um, but mustering them, I mean, it's, you're you're not Robert Redford horse whispering. Like I'm guessing it's a long way. That's it. we've seen breaking a horse. All right, and what we're kind of familiar with how you break a horse. Terrible word, but it's what happens. Mm. Like breaking a camel must like this is an animal that's ten times bigger. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways it is the same. And I learnt from some pretty traditional guys. Really, I'm sure that there is ways. You know, these days with horse breaking, there's a lot of ways that you know you can go softer, more gently, and slower. Yeah. I sort of learnt from from the old camel guys. It was sort of just you know what you just whack a halter on, you tie them up. I mean, it sounds terrible, but camels as well. I think that they they actually domesticate, I think, better than a horse. They have less sort of 
fire. Camels have this, you know, you, you'll see a camel sort of sitting down and they, they tuck their, their front legs and back legs in underneath them yeah. in this little sort of sphinx-like position. So a camel that uh, has just had enough or, or doesn't know what to do next, that's just, just their natural position is to sit down like that. Oh, my God. I just had this flash of every really hard yoga class that I've done it, where they can see me struggling and they will just quietly say from the front while I'm over the kind of corner, <laughs> like a child's pose is always available to <laughs> yes. you. You've just described a camel going in a child's pose, like, oh, too hard. A hundred percent. It is a hundred percent like that. They're like, I just, I don't know how else to fight, so I'm just going to sit down. Even mustering sometimes, they will just, I've been behind one, you know, in a little buggy, you know, all the other camels are running and this poor old bull bull goes, I've got no more. I'm just going to sit down. And you can wow, yeah. and you can't you can't pull it. Like no, numbers. they can no. be incredibly stubborn. But I mean, they can be incredibly stubborn. But then they, I also think they can be incredibly compliant for animals that mm. are you know seven hundred and fifty to eight hundred kilos. They, oh my god! I think it's all about getting to know the individual camel too. Yeah. Um, they all have different personalities, and when you start to sort of work out, you know what each of them are like, then you work with each of them, yeah, individually. As the momentum of your trip started to ramp up, was there a moment that you found, oh, I I can't change course, I can't change direction now, like this is going to happen no matter how scared I am? Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it actually because I I remember feeling like once I had got the camels and once I'd got right into the training of the camels and then started, you know, speaking to station owners and getting permission to walk across their land and I remember just feeling like, oh, my God, I'm on a treadmill and there's no getting off the treadmill. Yeah. Whether I wanted to go or not, it was kind of like, oh, shit, I'm committed now and I'm walking on this treadmill and there's there's no getting off. <laughs> just just to, for people, because people listen overseas, you say station owners. Now, let's just talk mm. about the size of what we're talking about here. Mm. So what are the sizes of some of these stations that you're talking about? We're talking cattle stations mostly or sheep stations, which is another word for a fucking massive farm. Yeah, ranch um, is what they call what, them in America. Are, yeah, ranch is another word. What is, what's the scale of these and what were those conversations like? Were they on the phone? Were they email? <laughs> yeah, they were on the phone. There was some, there was some awkward conversations because, you know, you're almost basically cold calling people. And so these stations are, you know, I walked across stations that were a million acres. And, yeah, I remember calling up and, and being like, uh, so uh, I've, I'm doing a bit of a camel trek uh, and... Um, I've got five camels and uh, look, I was just, I was just wondering whether it might be okay if I could walk across your land. Is that all right? It was really still, you know, awkward and, um, and thankfully most, you know, pretty much everyone was just like, oh yeah, no worries. (laughs) And, and I think the station owners too, who sort of see camels out there all the time, a lot of them almost you know, it didn't seem like a big deal to them. They're like, oh, yeah, we, we had some guy come through with camels about oh, 10 years back. Oh, yeah, no worries. That shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> wow. Uh, do they, would they say, look, do you need anything or, look, there's some water here? Yeah, look, absolutely. So once I got to – once I 
you know, got to those stations and I sort of, you know, was in touch with them a bit more regularly because I did that initial cold call and then I'd sort of send an email and sort of say, you know, look, I'll let you know because I didn't know exactly, you know, I didn't know how quickly I'd be travelling so I didn't know when I would get there. So I'd often call people and say, look, I'm, you know, I'm a week out, probably get there, you know, maybe next Wednesday or Tuesday I think. And then, yeah, people were you know, they would tell me exactly what gate I needed to go through, where the water points were on their station. You know, I had station owners bring out hay bales, you know. Yeah, like, you know, hours drive they would, you know, it was people bent over backwards. It was insane to see. On their own land. Let's just be clear. This is hours of driving on their own land. Oh, yeah, on their own land half the time, yeah. (laughs) So you're talking countries that are as big as, like, I don't know, this is getting an output here. Like Brunei is yeah. the, size, the size of the country of Brunei. is 5,765 square kilometres. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a, Crazy. There's a yeah. lot of land. Yeah. That is I walked a lot across of land. Anna Creek Station, which is, yeah, the world's largest cattle station. I almost had the camels take off on me there and I thought, yeah, this would not be a good place to, to lose. Them. Yeah, because you, you, you're you right about that. You're right about this moment that, I mean, you're in a cattle station now, so now we're bearing in mind that these are cows that just they're just out there and every now and again they f- figure out how many they want to muster and they pull them all in together and that's, that's what happens. Um, and so cows can literally be on this station for years mm. with the station owners having never laid eyes yeah. on them Wild ever. Wild cattle, and yeah. No idea where they are. Feral cattle, and so you've got your ca- your camels. They're used to you, um, not used to cattle. Certainly not wild cattle who are going. Who are you, and what are you doing on in my backyard? And was it a moo? Was it a, a cow in a bush? Like what was it that spooked your camels? Yeah, a cow in a dark space. I th- I think the thing is with camels. Yeah, I mean they'd come off a cattle property, but I think that they'd only ever looked at them from a distance. And I was sort of amazed at how many things in the early days used to scare my camels. Just a cute little baby goat. They were scared of you know a miniature pony on someone's station. They were scared of a flapping tarp of a shed. You know they were really spooky still in the early days and so and this day that I was walking yeah it was a a dark cow in the bushes in a sort of dry creek bed and they must have just seen it as you know a a movement out of the corner of their eye and it was a monster and yeah all of a sudden the lead rope went tight and I was being dragged along and till I got face down in the dirt and basically realized I could not hold on to that lead rope any longer and I let go and watched all my camels kind of topple over one another because uh, they're all linked together with ropes. So watched them topple over one another, saw sort of gear start to fall off them, and then they got back up, they recovered, and then they just bolted. And, I mean, camels walk really slow, but when they run, they can run, you know, 40K an hour. I mean, they might not have been running that fast then because they had gear on, but, but they can run. They can run fast. As you're watching your camels, you know, fly off over a, 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 a hill, I'm imagining it was very much like Tom Hanks watching Wilson go over the waves. Like what happens? Because that's your sat phone, your water, that's everything. Everything. I know I'd been so stupid. I'd sort of become complacent over the last couple of months and had sort of thought, oh, I don't, I don't need to carry the sat phone on me. I don't need to carry the EPIRB on me even. And, and I'd packed it all away in saddlebags. I didn't even, I thought, oh, I didn't even need to carry water on me. That's the great thing about walking with camels is they carry it all for you. 
And as I was running after them, yeah, I suddenly realized how stupid I'd become and that I didn't even have a drop of water on me. All I had was my pocket knife. And I remember thinking, you know, like if I don't get these guys back, well, for one, you know, how incredibly dangerous it would be for them. You know, you've got five camels loaded with gear, you know, that can't survive in a situation like that in the wild. They're all tied to one another. So it would have been incredibly dangerous for them. And yeah, for me as well, you know, I don't know, I would have had to somehow try and navigate back to a to a road, which I was at the time going cross country. I had no idea where I was in the bush. I don't want to blow how you made it out for the, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil the book, but you're here and we're talking. So, <laughs> so I did, I did make it back. <laughs> something figured out, but how you did it is, is, is pretty interesting. That's just one kind of peak moment, but there would have been moments every day when you are, you are faced. We are rarely as, as in our comfortable life, we are rarely faced with true challenge and true, true having to accept humility in order to survive. What was being exposed, deliberately exposing yourself to that amount of, I don't want to say humiliation, like in a way, like that amount of like having to be humble before the face of, you know, everything. What did that start to do to who you felt you were and your personality and how you looked at the world? Mm, I think it really taught me and I think partly the camels sort of helped with this. It, it, it taught me to, it sounds, sounds really stupid and corny considering what I did. It taught me to put one foot in front of the other because I always had the responsibility of the camels and it was, you know, you, you were never given, I was never given an opportunity to be able to fall in a heap and start crying. I mean, I did many times, but then I got to the point where I thought you can't just lay here crying because we're not in a good camp right now. Tomorrow you have to get up and you have to get these camels to a better place that's got better feed for them, that's in a better situation for them. So it really taught me to kind of to, to push through and to keep on moving forward. And, yeah, that was, a, that was a massive takeaway. And then I guess through that really learning how strong I was, you know, I think I had never, I sort of realised I'd never been pushed I'd never pushed myself and and there's so much value to pushing yourself both physically mentally uh, or pushing your you know your comfort zones because it makes those tiny moments of joy so much better and that's the thing I think I love now and really appreciate about doing I guess harder travel is that by having that long day walking or that hot day walking or, you know, surviving a tough situation, you know, it makes just sitting down at the end of the day having a cup of tea seem like the best thing in the world. It really makes you appreciate that. Being forced to look at the bigger picture in a moment of crisis is not we, our brains can trap us in that moment of crisis and can trap mm. us in this. Our brains can trap us in this space of like, this situation is how it's always going to be forever and there's nothing you can do at all. But being forced into that, you're like, well, you clearly see what's in front of you. It's like, actually nothing's going to change unless I do something and doing something is the only way Definitely. out of Definitely, yeah. I remember having the, like this one specific time maybe – Oh, it was maybe two weeks in and I had a really rough start to the beginning of the trip and it was 
it was really poor country I was traveling through in terms of it was it was during a drought there was barely any feed for the camels it was hot the camels were new the camels started really losing a lot of weight and so I was sort of seeing them get super skinny in front of my eyes and I had just done it was you know bad camp after bad camp after bad camp in terms of camel feed and I got to this one camp and I just thought there is not an ounce of feed here for my camels and they sat down in the shade and just looked so dejected and I remember crying on the tarp as you know my little home in the bush and just being like, I'm so sorry that I've taken you on this awful adventure, <laughs> crying to the camels. And, yeah, and, and I, yeah, I, like you said, I could have stayed there trapped for, for hours, but I knew I had to kind of look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture I thought was, you know, at the end when I, once I'd had my cry, I thought none of us are hurt, none of us have broken anything, we're all still capable, able, nothing's gone drastically wrong. We have food, we have water, you know, tomorrow's a new day and we just have to get up and we just have to go for a walk and hopefully we'll be in a better situation. (laughs) And it really sort of became, I guess, a bit my mantra for the trip. It was like, you know what, every day all I've got to do is get get up and go for a walk. It wasn't about doing the whole country. It was never about, oh, we, you know, we're going to Byron, it's 5,000 kilometres, you know. It was just literally about, Today we're going to go for a walk. I'm going to go for a walk with my camels. I can do that. That's easy. That's amazing for you to break it down to that. It really is what you're saying. It's like just simply just take the next step. That's the only thing you have to do and you're perfectly capable of doing that. And that's relatable. Not everyone listening. I say nobody listening is going to walk across Australia alone, <laughs> female alone, with five camels uh, across the country. No, not going to happen. Yet everyone is faced with something yeah. today. That they're going, oh, fuck, no, no, I can't fucking deal with this. The value of just going, identifying, once you've had your moment, once, once, and that we all have the moment. I mm-hmm. have the moment. I have one this morning. Once the flood kind of passes, once the flood of, you know, you know, reaction hormones, whether they be angry or sad hormones passes, what's the, the f- tiniest movement in the direction towards which way you want to go? And that's literally all you have to do. Yeah. Because then- you get there and you just do it 100%. again. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was sort of lucky, I guess, in a way that I had very few people out there. So there was definitely moments, you know, yeah, like you said, where you're in that emotion, you know, whether it be sadness or anger. And you know, I had a few angry ones where I would just let out the most almighty scream in the middle of the desert because I was able to do that because no one was listening. Just a moment away from Sophie to, um, say thank you for listening and thank you so much for the emails if you do want to email me it's really easy send osher email at gmail.com thank you very much to everybody that did jonathan and donna and Irina, and who else wrote to me oh ebony and um, adam wrote thank you adam and yes thank you so much it's always love and ben thanks for writing back ben good on you man uh it's always lovely to hear from you if this podcast does bring you some value please it would be wonderful if you could um pay that value back by just sharing it with someone it's going on the internet somewhere somehow and sharing this podcast with somebody maybe share friday's episode friday's episode was an interesting one it was uh when i then i uh, have a listen to that if that resonates with you maybe you could share it you know post it on your feed or just text it to someone or, i heard this episode it might be interesting to you yeah that would be really useful 
and, and it does a lot. It does way more than you think because people come and go all the time. People subscribe, um, but they do come and go all the time. So if you could like the show and rate the show and subscribe the show, but also share the show with somebody, that it would be a humongous help, humongous help for us because as I said all along, uh, regardless, I don't know how the Logies have turned out. Like I said, it's Saturday afternoon for me. All I really wanted to do by pushing the Logies thing was just to get more ears onto this podcast. That's it. Because these kind of conversations I know help a lot of people and I just wanted to be able to try to help more people. That was it. I'll back in a moment with Sophie Madison. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned sleeping on a, on a tarp. For folks who've never seen it, and it's funny because Wolfie's watching Madagascar, that movie, at the moment. This is just kind of happening a lot at our place right now. And there's a gag and they go, oh, look, the star is out because they're in the <laughs> zoo in the middle of Manhattan, oh, yes. right? I remember the first time I saw the night sky in the hour, out back. It was outside of Longreach. What, what's the sky like at night out there? Oh, I mean, it's it's something else. And I remember I started to learn all the stars. It was this real feeling of, and I guess this is maybe subconsciously what I wanted from the trip, but I didn't really realise until I was out there how much joy I would get from it. And that was feeling really attuned to nature and knowing you know, what was happening every night with the night sky. I knew whether it was going to be a full moon or whether the moon was getting up, you know, a couple of hours into the night or uh, I knew when the saucepan was rising or um, I knew where Jupiter and Saturn was and some of the other stars. And, and yeah, just having that real feeling of, of I guess, being orientated with my natural surroundings. And that was, yeah, so, so special. And the stars become like your friends in that sense, I guess, because, you know, every night you go, oh, yep, there's the saucepan, there's Bellatrix, there's Beetlejuice, there's, you know, there's, and you can start to to name them all. And I, and I found this actually, and I, I mean, I, you know, I'm speaking as a white woman, I don't know, but, but I guess that's the feeling that Indigenous people have. And I, when I met uh, some of the community members out in the Great Victoria Desert from Oak Valley Community, I loved the fact that they had this name. I, I was telling them about all these dust storms that kept coming, you know, it was this horrible hot wind that we kept having this weather from. And one of the ladies said, oh, that wind is called Piria. And I thought, oh, that's so cool that they have, you know, certain words for, for, for that specific wind that comes down from the, from the western and northern deserts, you know, and, uh, yeah, that feeling of, of, of connection to all of those elements. 
what you're describing, like to un, being un, being in the understanding that we as humans, as much as we're trying to separate ourselves in, you know, walls with right angles and screens and electricity and whatever, we are a part of a much bigger mm. system. And that bigger system extends trillions of light years up from our top mm. of our heads. Uh, and you, it's undeniable. Mm. We can't survive without any of it. It can survive without us, but we can't survive without Without any, without any yeah. of it. You mentioned one of the station owners says, oh, yeah, we had a bloke walk through here a couple of years back. It's one thing for, uh, look, shit, it's one thing for me as a white man to walk down the street alone at night. It's one thing for my wife or my eldest who's 19 now to walk down the street alone at night in any city in the world. To walk across a desert as a woman alone, like we've all seen Wolf Creek. You know, like that's a... <laughs> That's that's there's danger. There's not not danger, you know. That's that's some pretty frightening stuff. If you really kind of scratch the surface, I guess I never saw it like that. I mean, uh, yeah, I know. I just think that there's such a preconceived idea about the outback from movies like Wolf Creek. Scott's got a lot to answer for. Um, that that just show that there's you know so much badness in the outback and. It's so not the case, you know. I think it, it, it's such a, a false notion, and you know, there's you know, so many places I walked. There's no one out there, you know. No one, no one would know that I was even there, you know. And if they did, it was you yeah. know maybe one station owner at the time. No one, you know. Otherwise, they didn't really know where I was traveling, where I was going to. And so, I actually never went into it feeling particularly unsafe in that way. And I think I've always, yeah, I've always felt quite sort of safe in general in, in in nature and uh i mean yeah there's there was definitely there's definitely been moments you know when i was out there where you know someone would come by camp in the night you're sort of a little bit i guess on edge and i really learned to not judge a book by its cover because it was i was constantly wrong every time i was passed by a bunch of mo- motorcyclists on, on the edge of the desert and they came by and you know gave me a beer and we sat around the fire and had a beer and then they carried on on their motorbike <laughs> tour, you know. Uh, or, you know, one time it was actually my friend Greg turned up to, to help deliver water for me and my camels, you know. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's always, I guess, a little bit of that, you know, feeling, but mainly it's just, your, you know, it's just your subconscious. Yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah we yeah. just, we play these these tricks on ourselves. But I would also say to you, Sophie, you're the kind of woman who, or the kind of person who goes, I'm going to walk across Australia and I'll be fine. You know, there's, uh, you know, I've heard stories of criminals uh, who have done like street crime, like muggings and things like that, and showing them pictures of people walking shot only from the waist up, vision of people walking. So telling just by the way they walk, their, their feet, their hips down, going, nope, nope, easy, nope, yes. Like there's something that we signal in the way that we move that shows you know, vulnerability or we're not vulnerable. So I'm, I'm guessing you're, you're clearly walking with purpose. You're walking with an energy about you. Uh, and plus you've got, what, you've got 3,000 kilos of, of yeah. cranky camel to unleash. Yeah. Like, I did, did you have some guns as well. So I mean, Yeah, you took some firearms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had to take them for wild, for wild camels out there. So not that I would ever, you know, and, it, and it's so funny. People are like, oh, well, it's good that you had the guns. I thought, God, I would never want to be in that situation no. where I'd ever think about using the guns in terms of self-defense you know against another human never but um yeah I don't know whether that yeah I guess like you said you know I had five big camels with a lot of gear and and a lot of you know 
a purpose. To, to embark on a journey like this and, you know, to, to understand that it's just a step at a time. I've, I'm lucky enough to have run a couple of marathons, a couple of endurance marathons. And there's a point where at 38 Ks of 42, you're like, I, this is, I can't, I'm fucked. And then at 38 and a half, you realize, hang on, it's three and a half Ks to go. I can run three and a half Ks in my sleep. And then everything about you changes and you have access and resources to just this whole new world of energy and ability that you otherwise, and you just power, you speed up as you get towards mm. the end. Is there a mindset shift that starts to happen as you, as you kind of get closer to the East Coast? Yeah, for sure. I, I remember out in the Great Victoria Desert, I had a real, um, it was funny, it, you know, people are like, oh, how, how does that affect you being out there on your own, you know? Uh, what does that do to your mental state? You, there is a part of you that does go, I guess, a, a little bit crazy. And my crazy thing was I, I just became obsessive over over numbers, weirdly so, because I'm not. I don't think of myself as a numbers person. But you know, I was obsessed with how many k's I was going to do every day, mm. what time I would get up. Yeah. Uh, what time, how long the camels would graze for, what time I would get them into in, uh, in from grazing, how much water we would carry, even though I know, knew all of these times and then some of them didn't matter either. Um, you know, I would go over how much weight each single camel was carrying and I just I would play these numbers again and again over in my head obsessively so. And then I somewhere towards sort of the second half of my journey I realized that I had sort of let that go and that I was all of a sudden going with the flow yeah. <laughs> and kind of living in the moment. And I was less obsessed with this whole, you know, okay, today, you know, you've got to, you've got to get up, you've got to get the camels at this time. We're going to walk this number of Ks. You know, I became less structured and I realized that I suddenly was actually <laughs> enjoying myself, believe it or not. And then I almost, Rather than pushing forward, I almost started to pull back. I started to go, oh, we we don't need to do that many Ks today. We could camp here. We could stretch this out. We could, you know, it might take us three weeks rather than two. That doesn't matter because I was just enjoying so much being out there. There's something to be said for trying, and I understand when you're in that situation early on, when you're looking to control as many controllables as you can mm, for a sense yeah, of... Yeah, I think that's what it is, a sense of control yeah, in, absolutely. in a situation that you can never control. You know, you're in a wild environment. But there's also the part of like, well, I can't control any of that or that or mm. that or that or that. That's just now my brain's just doing a spinny beach ball that my computer does mm. when I put too many tabs open. Mm. Meh, I can mm. close them all. This is the part that I can do. I can yeah. do the walking forward part. <laughs> totally, exactly. That's it's hard. Exactly it. It's hard to get there and to yeah. trust that everyone else yeah. is going to do the right thing. It's yeah, hard to get there. Sometimes it takes about 4,000 kilometres to get there, you know. <laughs> 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 but, but I got there in the end. <laughs> uh, for, all of their, for all of their faults, uh, and it's a terrible book, uh, there's a book by Motley Crue called The Dirt. Uh, it's a f- frightful to read uh, and it, in a great and terrible way. But there's a moment where Tommy Lee, for all his faults, he says, I wish someone wrote a book. Here's what to do once you get off tour. Because uh, I did relate <laughs> to that. We used to do mm. very intense periods of work, both with Channel V, with the music stuff, and also shows like Australian Idol, when it would just be like everything, everything, everything for months, day in, yeah. day out, all day. And then fireworks, bye. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what, hang, what do I, 
what do I do now? I try to go on holiday, but I couldn't feel relaxed because I was at three, 38,000 RPMs, you know, just yeah. trying, and I didn't know what to do. Like what, when you, you touch the Pacific Ocean, you put your camels back on a special truck and they're heading back to Adelaide, like what do you, what do you do? Yeah, I think that's often not spoken about. And I often, you know, wonder that with other adventurers how, because the ending in a way can be a little bit of an anticlimax. Everyone's kind of hyping it up going, you know, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about finishing, you know? And everyone's expecting you this to be this massive crescendo when the journey's already happened, you know? The journey is in the, the, the walking every step of it. It's in It's in the moments, you know, along the way, not really in the ending, not in the touching of the Pacific Ocean. In a way, I had started to realise that the journey had ended a little bit before I got to Byron. And because I went out there with the camels, really I, I wanted to experience those those wild places in Australia that we talked about and I wanted to experience that alone with my animals. And and then all of a sudden I got to to the busyness of the East Coast and everything was starting to change, you know. I was, yeah. every, people were, you know, and it was this, this, people were trying to be nice and everyone was inviting me into their homes and cooking me dinner and, and, and all of this. But, but it was like the challenge was gone and I was frustrated yeah. at that because it was like, no, I, I, I came to do this to, to camp and to be out under the stars. Thank you for offering your bed. But, but I, you know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't do it to, to sort of stay at everyone's houses along the way and, so, but I realized that I, you know, I, I, that was, that was part of it too. And I had to just, I had to let go of the fact that I had left the desert and I was into, to busyness and busy oh. roads and. I'm so, I'm kind of overcome with emotion hearing you describe that. I'm, the only thing I can relate is having spent time in the Californian desert in a place called Joshua Tree National Park, which is unbelievable. Oh, Joshua Tree is beautiful. Incredible. And, and then. As you start to turn back around, and I was starting back to go back home to Los Angeles, and then you, uh, you drive about 40 minutes and then there's the first billboard and you go, oh, it's odd because mm. suddenly there's this thing mm. there with a logo and it's on it. horrible and commercial and you realise you're back to humanity and the ugliness and of it. it. happens again <laughs> and again and within an hour you stop noticing but mm. there's one every mm. of your message, like your brain yeah. starts to, to fill up rather than, wow, look at that bush, that star, that thing, mm. that hill, that, that are like now mm. you, it's just full of messaging and it's just mm. I, I can understand what that would have felt like a couple of weeks prior as you're edging closer and closer to the civilization or the kind of buildup of people that live closer yeah. to the coastline um, and what that would have felt like to have to let go of that. But you also yeah. touched on something extraordinary, which, you know, sounds like a Thoreau quote, but truly that like the end is the end, but the, the, the journey was the journey. Like that's, that's where the value was. It's not in finishing it. Like I've had Olympians on this show that tell me, the gold medal is just the thing. Mm. The person I became mm. to get the gold medal, that's the that's it. Mm. Yeah. You know? What's yeah. the person what's the person that you were when you started versus the person that you became because of this? What's the difference there? Oh, I think I think that's something you know I'm still finding out to this day. I think I'm I'm still having, I guess, small little light bulb moments, uh, thinking about what the trip trip meant to me and how it changed me and um partly like you said it's sort of 
I realized that the the end wasn't really just the end. It was the beginning of new adventures to come and there would be constantly more things in my life that would change me and progress me and and keep me moving forward. So yeah, it wasn't it was a realization that it was the journey the journey would carry on. But uh I I think I realized how how you know how incredibly strong I was that I I never had realized that before. Also, oh, you know, such a, uh, I have such an appreciation now for my own, my own company <laughs> and spending time on my own. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, happy and, and able to do that. I think I sort of always have been, but I guess it really, it really proved that to me. And to know as well, I, when I look back on the entire journey, I guess, and I look back on how I got into camels and how random it all was. And like I said at the beginning, the fact that it, it never really made sense that I was going down this path. I think that, you know what, life often doesn't make sense and just roll with it because you never know what amazing <laughs> experiences can yeah. come out of it. You know, I mean, so many times I question like, well, why am I, why am I milking camels, you know? I went to girl's grammar, you know, should I be, should I be being a doctor or a lawyer now? You know? And then when I was on the trip, I was like, why am I doing this? Does anyone even care that I'm out here alone in the desert with my five camels? Like, what's the point of all of this? You know? And, you know, I've just realized, yeah, you'll, you'll question yourself constantly, but if you just, I don't know, just give into, give into that uncertainty and just realize that life's somehow got its own strange plan for you and it will all work out in the end. <laughs> not everyone's, as I said, we've said a few times, not everyone's going to walk across Australia uh, with five camels and people aren't going to walk across their suburb. What would you say about what it does for you to be to be in motion, to not be sedentary, to to be moving and have a, an, a mindset of moving towards something? Mm. I was actually thinking about this today and I will, if I can, I'm going to read out this quote which I have in my book because it's my one of my favourite quotes and that's obviously why I put it in the book and I think it's a good thing for us all to remind ourselves of. So um, I cannot pronounce the name of the person who said this but anyway. Above all, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I have walked myself into my best thoughts and know no thoughts so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. Thus, if one keeps on walking, everything will be all right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my quote about walking. Well, not everyone, not everyone can walk. Not everyone has the ability, but just to at least to be to be in, in motion. Yeah. Exactly. If you take it, if you take that as, as being in motion, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think I've ever been a very good de decision maker. And I think probably that was another thing that this trip taught me is, is how to just, sometimes you just have to make a decision and move forward. It doesn't matter if it's the wrong decision. You just have to, you just have to make a decision so that you can move forward. I mean, life is in motion and we can't just stop and put it on pause you know we just have to to keep rolling with it and yeah and, and moving forward in the best way that we can at, at any given moment in your experience the 
problems that you were anticipating that were stopping you from making that decision? How do they compare to the problems and solutions you find once you're going? Well, I think the thing is, is that once you've made that decision, then those problems arise and then you can deal with those problems, you know, otherwise you're just staying stuck in that, in that state of, you know, indecisiveness and and nothing is, is getting done. So I think you're better off making some decision rather than any, and then, yeah, and then you have to face those problems, whatever they are, and just take them one step at a time uh, and deal with them as they come. I used to stand there at the end of the day trying to work out where to, to make my camp. And having a good camp or a bad camp in terms of camel feed would make the world of difference to me. If it was a bad camp, I would end up spending all afternoon chasing after the camels as they wandered around, you know. And so I'd, I'd stop in this spot and go, oh, do I unload them here? Or do I keep walking? Will I not find a better camp if I keep walking? Oh, should I just go with this camp here? Or no, maybe there'll be something better further down the track, you know, further down the road. And, you know, I'd be turning around to my five camels who'd just be sort of looking at me like, well, what are we doing? Stopping. You, you know, do you want to go? Do you want to, do you want to stay? What do you want to do? And I realized that the only person that could make that decision at this time was me. And, that was an incredibly empowering experience. I feel like I'd always been on, you know, I'd always travelled with other people or been on adventures with other people and you rely on, oh, well, what would you guys want to do? Yeah. Would you want to keep going and make camp somewhere else or would you want to stay? And all of a sudden I realised the camels aren't going to answer me. It's me that's got to make this decision. <laughs> and, yeah, and I would just have to, I think, quiet and listen to my gut. I've always been a big one for just listening, listening to your gut. That's that's extra, and it does actually does remind me. Speak about traveling with other people. There's another Thoreau quote about travel. It goes something along the lines of like, "Whoever travels alone, you're always ready. You travel with someone else, you always have to wait for the other person to be ready." Mm. <laughs> yeah. And bear for in mind sure. that if you're traveling with me, you're waiting for me. Uh, <laughs> so it's a drag for you. Um, but let's say Brisbane Girls Grammar hears this, and I don't know if you've already been asked back. Have you been asked back? I have amazingly, yeah. So they, so they, they took an interest in the camel trek, and yeah. they, you know, printed it in their alumni, you know, emails. And then I actually had all these beautiful messages. They had told the grade nines, I think, at the time that were going out on camp, and they had written me all these these beautiful <laughs> messages. And it was and it was so funny, and it was kind of it was almost like my past self speaking to my future self because yeah. these messages were all like. I don't know, how do you find your passion? You know, I can uh, see that you found your passion. Mum and Dad want me to become a, a doctor, but I don't think that's what I'm passionate about. I don't know, yeah. you know, what I want to do. And I felt like I felt like hugging them all and going, I still don't know what I'm doing. I still have, don't have a clue. I don't have a clue how I ended up with camels half the time and I still don't know where, what direction I'm going in, but it doesn't matter, you know. Choose the path less travelled. Who knows where you go? It'll be somewhere great in the end. You're amazing. So thank you so, so much. And uh, there's a guy I'm into at the moment, Kevin Kelly. He wrote, um, he, he's a, he, he started Wired Magazine. He's just, you know, written some interesting books, but he has this line of like, um, don't be the best. Don't strive to be the best, strive to be the only. Mm. And you're yep. definitely the only. <laughs> the, the, you are the only. And that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> Cherry on top. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Osha. And that was Sophie Madison. The book is uh, 
It's an epic, naturally. It's called The Crossing. Get it where you get your books. Yeah, she's really something. That's quite a story. Beautiful story. She's a great photographer too. If you go on her website, there's rad photos. It's really cool. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. Thank you for everything. If you voted in the Logies, no matter how it turned out, look, thank you for giving a shit and taking some time out of your day to throw some votes my way. I don't know how the things turned out. All I know is that, as my old manager used to say, you only you know how hard you worked to make your dreams come true. And I've really enjoyed the last couple of weeks. Really enjoyed it. Nobody does anything alone. And I've been working with some people on putting everything together to go out online over the last couple of weeks. And it's been really fun and a really enjoyable experience. So yeah, I'll be back here on Wednesday. Yeah, Logie or no, the podcast continues. We're not stopping. Thanks very much to everyone that helped me make this show. Thanks very much to Bree Steele, uh, who did some research on this one. To Abby Bano, who uh, produced, and Andy Mark on audio and video production. Thank you so much, Andy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.